little humor is always good. Thank you. Good morning, and I too want to welcome all of you. I am Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is such a privilege and joy for me to be here today. What a thrill to see all of you. This is so great. How many of you are here for the very first time? Some of you are Whoa, look at that. That's wonderful. That is so great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Welcome. And I just want to say welcome to all the rest of you as well. Thank you so much. Um, I see they're handing out verse sheets and outlines. Everybody wants uh, that this morning. What a thrill to be here, to be with all of you, all of us in this place. And I want to begin this morning by telling a story about myself. When I was nine years old in the fourth grade, my family moved from a little town outside of Chicago, Illinois. It was called Skokie. We moved to a little town outside of Miami, Florida called Miami Springs. And we got there the beginning of December. It was right after Thanksgiving, and it was beautiful in Miami. The weather was totally warm. Um, Chicago had been totally cold when we left. So I thought, this is good. I'm going to like this. And I, I was excited about starting the new school. And my mom took my brother and I up to school, and... It was, it was different from the public school I'd gone to in Skokie. This had big windows with the wind and air going in because there was no air conditioning. And the doors opened right out to the um, courtyard. It was not an enclosed school. And I thought, oh, this is so neat. So my mom... Um, enrolls us and the principal takes me to my class and uh, the teacher comes to the door and the principal says this is your new student this is Debbie Henderson and so my teacher who in my memory was like the age of my great-grandmother she was (laughs) she had white hair and little glasses and she was short and she goes oh welcome but we already have a Debbie in the class so we will call you Deborah I thought well okay Nobody calls me Deborah. Um, you know, my parents rarely called me Deborah, but okay, um, I'm Deborah. So we walk into the class and she says, uh, Class, this is our new student, Deborah. And then she says, Debbie, will you, the other Debbie, or maybe I should say the only Debbie in the class, will you come and take Deborah to her seat and kind of show her around today? She didn't look too happy about that, but she got up and she took me to my desk and I had barely sat down when the teacher said, okay, class, everyone get out your Bibles and open it up to the psalm for today and we will have Deborah read for us. Terror grips my heart because I had come from Skokie, Illinois. Now, if you all don't know about Skokie, it is a predominantly Jewish town. And when I say Jewish, I mean very Jewish. At Christmas, we had the only Christmas tree in the window. Everyone else had the Hanukkah candles. And on uh, Rosh Hashanah, the high Jewish holiday, in third grade, I was one of three students who showed up. It was very Jewish. We did not bring our Bibles to school in Skokie. And so I look at my teacher and I said, I didn't bring my Bible. And then she has a look of sort of terror and um, shock on her face and says to me, you didn't bring your Bible? And then I did what I have done many times throughout my life, so embarrassing, I burst into tears. So now I'm crying and the teacher comes over and she's like, oh, it's okay. And she leans over and her glasses get tangled with my glasses. Did I mention the part that I wear glasses? And she straightens up and my glasses go flying across my desk and the whole class begins to laugh. And I am thinking, this is the worst day of my life. I am miserable. I am totally embarrassed, totally humiliated. And I'm thinking, I do not fit in here. 
And the teacher says, um, now, now, class, it's okay. Ronnie will read the psalm for today. And Deborah can bring her Bible tomorrow. And she can read the psalm then. And I'm thinking to myself, i got to find a train to get run over by or a car that can hit me or maybe I can get lost on the way home. I cannot show up in this class tomorrow. I was miserable. So I tell you, okay, now don't, don't get too sad, you guys, because really the year turned out fine. Fourth graders are resilient. I made friends. I won the fourth grade spelling bee. I mean, it was all good, except for that day. That was very painful. And I tell you this story for two reasons. One, because maybe this is your first time to ever be at Women in the Word. And you got to your small group today, and they said, oh, we already have a Debbie in the group. We're going to call you Deborah. (laughs) Or maybe they said, open your Bibles, and can you read this scripture verse? And you didn't bring your Bible today. Maybe you don't have a Bible. And if that's the case, I found out that there are some we can give you. So see me afterwards. We'll get you a Bible. But if that's your story, if that was your kind of day, you came in and things did not go like you were anticipating, I just want to say I'm sorry, and please give us another chance. Please come back next week, because we really want you to feel comfortable. We have prayed and talked a lot this summer about everyone feeling comfortable and warm, and that this would be a friendly place. So please come back and give us another chance. And I would love to meet you. If you're new, come up afterwards and introduce yourself. I'd love to talk to you. The second reason I tell you this story is because we are studying the gospel of Luke this semester. And Luke is going to tell us how Jesus knew rejection. Jesus knew rejection. He knew what it felt like to be lonely, to be misunderstood, and to be mistreated to the point of death. Luke emphasizes in his gospel Jesus as the son of man. The son of man. Now, Jesus was the son of God, but he was also the perfect son of man. And so Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus and his great compassion for the disadvantaged, the social outcasts, those that feel and know rejection. Today, we call these people the um, disenfranchised or the marginalized. Um, We use these big words, but it really just means those that are on the fringes of society. The poor, the needy, the lonely, those that are racially different, or those that have humble humble jobs or no jobs. But the truth is, I think that we all have really known rejection sometime in our life. Maybe it's just as simple as everyone was invited to the party and you didn't get an invitation. Or maybe you did get invited to the party and when you showed up, nobody talked to you. You felt um, like you didn't fit in. Maybe you didn't have the right clothes on. I've got another story about that I'll have to tell you another time, being at the party without the right clothes on. Um, Maybe you're here today and you are feeling rejection right now, something big in your life. Maybe um, it's a financial jam that you're in and you don't think anyone understands what you're going through. Or maybe you are having trouble with your spouse or another member of the family and people know about that and you feel humiliated or lonely. Whatever it is, whatever you've come uh, with today and you're feeling rejected, I have good news for you from the book of Luke. And that is Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you and he came for me. He came for us, the lost Because the key verse in Luke, it's in 19.10, Jesus says this about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. 
He came for you and he came for me individually. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin so that when we believe, we can be part of that forgiveness and enter into an eternal relationship with him. God looks at us through the blood of Jesus and he sees us as perfect. And you know what? We are in We're in, we're in the kingdom of God and not on the edges of it, but right in the middle of it. We're in the party for good, for always, right in the middle of the love of Jesus. Jesus came to save the lost. He came for you and me. And that's what we're going to talk about in the book of Luke this year. And it's so exciting to me. So let's turn to Luke 1.1 and start looking at this uh, first chapter. We're going to talk uh, about several things today. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, then Luke, and then John. And while you're turning to Luke 1, let me tell you a little bit about the other gospels. Um, Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, he wrote his book with a Jewish audience in mind. And so he emphasizes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of the Jews. And then Mark wrote his book. Um, We looked at that, studied that a couple years ago. And we learned that um, Mark emphasizes Jesus coming to earth to be a servant and to be our sacrifice. And the key verse in Mark is Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then the book of John, this was another disciple uh, of Jesus, one of the original 12, and he writes about the love of Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is God. He emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. And then Luke emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of Man. So let's begin looking here at Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Starts out by saying, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, these first four verses here are a prologue to Luke. Um, This would be very common in Greek literature, and so Luke um, uh, has a prologue to his book. And the first word that jumps out to me is fulfilled. What's fulfilled? And some of your translations may say accomplished. That is referring to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the uh, point in history. That's the event, the life-changing history-changing, world-changing event. Jesus coming to earth to save us. And then I see that word many, and it says many have undertaken to draw up accounts, and they were eyewitnesses. Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus. And so I think he's referring probably to Matthew and Mark. Those gospels were written before uh, Luke, and they were eyewitnesses to Christ. And it also could be referring to other writings about Jesus, because not everything written about Jesus made it into the Bible. Only those things that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we know that. You looked at that in your groups today. And then also I have Second Peter on your verse sheet. Um, everyone has a verse sheet. Second Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried away by the Holy Spirit. Carried away by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is directing the authors that contribute to the Bible. So Luke is being directed by the Holy Spirit. These are the true words of God. So let's go on, see what else Luke says in his uh, prologue, verse 3. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. So we read here that Luke has carefully investigated and wants to write this book. Um, carefully investigated, it's thought that he interviewed many disciples, other followers, um, maybe Mary herself. And um, so who is this Luke? Who is Luke that carefully investigated that? We don't know a lot about him. That's the um, truth. But you looked up some verses today about Luke. And what we did learn about him was that he was a good friend of Paul's. He was a companion, a loyal and close friend, a co-worker with Paul. Now, Paul was the evangelist to the Gentiles. He came to Christ after Christ was resurrected in a dramatic scene on the road to Damascus and became a fervent follower of Jesus. And he he was the one that went on the missionary journeys telling the good news to the Gentiles. And Luke was with him for much of that way. We also learned that Luke is a physician. He was a doctor, um, probably Paul's doctor, when Paul was sick and in prison towards the end of his life. So we know that Luke was well-educated and that he had a scientific mind. And he would have used these um, skills in observation and analysis to write this book of Luke. As a doctor, he knew the importance of being thorough, investigating and looking at the facts. Luke was a clear thinker. He was a thoughtful researcher and he was a careful historian. So what was his purpose in writing the book of Luke? Well, he tells us verses three and four. So let's look at that. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to write an orderly account for most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, he, he tells us here he's going to write an orderly account, a comprehensive and accurate account of Jesus so that Theophilus can be certain of what he's been taught. Now, who is Theophilus? That we don't know. His name means lover of God, and because he calls him excellent, it's thought that he was a person of distinction, someone maybe in leadership, a Roman official, most likely a Gentile, because Luke writes um, this book with Gentiles in mind. And that's nice because most of us in this room are Gentiles. If you don't have some Jewish heritage in your background, then you are a Gentile. And uh, Luke takes every opportunity throughout his book to really talk about how Jesus came for the Jewish people and also for the Gentile. In fact, next week in chapter 2, we're going to see a very devout Jewish man named Simeon. He's in the temple. Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus in, and Simeon recognizes him as the Messiah. And so he lifts up these words of praise to God, and this is what he says. This is a quote from Isaiah. I think it is so cool. It's on your verse sheet, Luke 2, 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is saying this to the Lord, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke wants us to know that Jesus came not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentile. And he talks about this throughout the book of Luke. Many times we're going to see this presented. And why is he writing this orderly account of Jesus? So that you may know with certainty the truth about Jesus. 
this is what really happened. This is what Jesus really did. This is what he really said. This is how he really felt. His miracles, the parables, the teachings, these are all true. This is what Jesus did. His death, his resurrection, this is what really happened. These are the facts. This is the truth about Jesus. And Luke doesn't want us just to close our eyes and think, I'm going to believe in Jesus. Quite the contrary. Luke is saying, look at this. Look at the facts. Find out the truth about Jesus and then decide for yourself what you think about him. So this book written for Theophilus is really written for all men. It's written for you and me. And how exciting that we're going to study it this semester. The book of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And we've already said that Luke emphasizes the humanity of Christ. In fact, he uses the phrase, Son of Man, 24 times in the book of Luke. This was the title that Jesus used most frequently about himself. And I want to tell you that this comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel has a vision and this is what it says. It's on your verse sheet. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never pass away. So we see from this vision that Daniel had that when Jesus uses this term, this title, Son of Man, not only does it emphasize its, his humanity, but it also emphasizes that he is the Messiah, God the Son, our Savior, who is coming to earth. Because his humanity is emphasized, Luke writes more about the birth of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. You all may have noticed that already. It's thought that he interviewed Mary to get these details about his birth. And as the Son of Man... We um, see the compassion of Jesus throughout Luke. The compassion of Jesus. Luke tells us not only what Jesus did, um, what he said, but how he felt. We see the compassion of Jesus for the disadvantaged and really for all people. Jesus cared deeply about people. He was interested in relationships. He had deep friendships with the disciples and with other followers such as Mary and Martha. Jesus was concerned about all people, the uh, religious leader as well as the leper, the wealthy centurion as well as the poor widow. People were important to Jesus, and so Luke's gospel revolves around people. And uh, that, because of that, we're going to study this book of Luke a little bit differently than some of the other studies in the past. The first four weeks, we're going to look at chapters 1 through 7, and we're going to look at the people that are involved there, Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist and the disciples and, and other people. And then the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of these topics that run through the book of Luke, such as um, the key verse uh, that says Jesus came to say, seek and to save what was lost. How did he do that? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at the disadvantage, those social outcasts that Luke has throughout his book. We're going to see what Jesus said to them, how he responded to them, and how we are to respond in situations. We're also going to look at the women in Luke because Luke has more about women than any of the other Gospels. Why? Because when Jesus came to earth, he elevated the status of women. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus knew the importance of women. 
So we're going to have one whole lesson on the women in Luke. And then we're going to also look at prayer in Luke. Luke has more about prayer than any of the other Gospels. So one of our lessons will be on prayer. The last four weeks, we're going to look at the last week of Jesus' life. And that will be chapters 19 through the end of Luke, chapter 24. So be looking um, for those things that throughout the book and also two more um, themes are the Holy Spirit and joy there is much joy throughout the book of Luke and we're going to see those two themes um, today in our lesson so with that said let's go on and we're going to look at the first two people that Luke introduces Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth verse 5 in the time of Herod king of Judah there was a priest named Zechariah Okay, now let me stop right there um, and tell you, like a good historian, Luke sets the time. He lets us know when this is taking place. It's in the time of Herod, king of Judah. Now, on your uh, verse sheet, I've put a uh, chart of the Herods because there's many in the New Testament. And this one that Luke is talking about here is Herod the Great, the very one at the top. Now, let me say, Rome was in power during this time. And so they were the ones that really were um, in power over Israel. But the Roman Senate had um, put like an overseer. Uh, They had confirmed Herod the Great to be uh, kind of in charge over this part of Israel. Now, the Jewish people did not like Herod. He was only half Jewish. He was not from the line of David. And they were being very oppressed by the Romans. And they saw Herod being in cahoots with the Romans. And so they saw this oppression um, coming from him as well. So he was not liked. And he was not really a very nice guy, as we're going to see in the weeks to come. Um, I want you to keep this chart. We don't have time to talk about it now. But there are some other Herods that we're going to see further on in the book of Luke. So keep this uh, chart handy so that you can refer back to it so let's uh, continue on here so a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron okay some of you might be thinking who in the world are Zechariah and Elizabeth and why is Luke starting out his book about Jesus with these two random people. So let me clue you in real fast before we go on with the rest of this story. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth were going to become the parents of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one that was prophesied about in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And we actually met Malachi the prophet last semester when we were studying Nehemiah. Because that's when Malachi was prophesying and um, And we looked at him as we studied Nehemiah. Malachi was the last one to prophesy before the Old Testament closes. And then there's 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist arrives on the scene. And so I want to read that verse in Malachi. It's a little hard to understand, written in prophetic language. It's on your verse sheet. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Okay, now Elijah's a prophet that's already died. So um, Malachi in this prophecy is saying someone will come like in the spirit, like Elijah, that will come before the coming Messiah. Luke, as this careful historian, he likes to connect the dots. And so even though he's a Gentile, he knows God has a plan to bring a redeemer to earth. A redeemer for God's people, the Jews. 
and for the Gentile as well. In fact, Luke wants us to know that this was God's plan, this plan of love and salvation for all people. Luke wants us to know this was God's plan from the very beginning. We see it almost in the very beginning, the first chapters of Genesis. We see God's plan of providing a redeemer for us because of his great love for us. In fact, Luke has a genealogy about Jesus. If you'll just keep your finger there and turn over to chapter 3, verse 23, I want us to look really quickly at this genealogy of Jesus. Um, There's also a genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. But he ends with Abraham because, remember, he was writing to the Jews. But Luke, he carries his um, genealogy all the way to the beginning. So if you look at verse, look down there at verse 34, we see the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. But then Luke goes on with all these other sons. And if you'll go to verse 38, the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, the son of God. He wants us to know this was God's plan, that God was going to send a redeemer for all man. It was always, Gentiles were always included in this plan of the Redeemer coming for his people and the Gentiles as well. So let's begin um, looking at these parents of John the Baptist, and it's quite an interesting and exciting story. First thing that we've learned is that Zechariah is a priest from the division of Abijah, and that Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So what that means there is Moses was the brother of Aaron, and Moses is the one that led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness and onto the promised land. And when they were in the wilderness, God gave Moses the law. And part of that law was he said, your brother Aaron will be the first high priest. And from his line will come the priest that will take care of the things going on in the temple. And all of those in the tribe of Levi, because Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi, that tribe would be the priestly tribe. They would be the ones that would tell the word of God to the people, share, teach them the word of God. And so uh, Zechariah is a priest, means he's from the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, and his wife Elizabeth was also from that priestly line of Aaron, tribe of Levi. So that's important to know. And then this division of Abijah. David, when he was king, divided all the priests into different divisions, and 24 to be exact. And so Abijah was one of them, and that's the division that Zechariah was in. So let's read verse 6 and learn some more about them. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Okay, we learn that they are both upright. They obey the commandments. They um, follow God. They love God, they follow God, they obey God, and it says they are upright. Now, upright is a word that means they had a right relationship with God. They weren't just going through meaningless rituals. They actually loved God. They were following him wholeheartedly. They wanted to obey him completely. They had a right relationship with God, but they had no children, and this would have been a bitter disappointment to them. Let's go on verse 8 and see what happens. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So let me explain this a little bit. The temple is in Jerusalem. And these 24 divisions of priests uh, were on duty twice a year, one week at a time. And when uh, they were on duty, they went to Jerusalem and they did the rituals and the sacrifices in the temple. So we read here that Zechariah's division was on duty and he was chosen by Lot to be the one that would go in to the Holy of Holies and burn the incense on the altar of incense. This was big. This was really big, super big day in Zechariah's life because it would be the only time that Zechariah would ever be able to go into the Holy of Holies and burn this incense. And what does this burning of incense mean? This represented the prayers of all of Israel going up to God. And what were they praying for? They were praying for a redeemer. They were being oppressed by Rome, and they were praying that God would send the Redeemer, a Savior. They'd been praying this for centuries. And so we know that Zechariah was praying that, and all the other priests outside were also praying with him. And the, uh, Elizabeth would have been there, and maybe other relatives and friends of Zechariah would have been there on this, on this important day. And then let's read what happens. You know, it looks like Zechariah was um, there by chance. He was chosen by Lot. But we know that it was God's providence. It was God's plan and God's will that uh, Zechariah would be in the Holy of Holies on that day. Verse 11 tells us, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Wow. Now here is some good news. Uh, we don't know for a fact that Zechariah was praying for a son at that moment. We know he was more than likely praying for the Messiah to come. Maybe he had prayed for a son too. But we do know that over the years, he and Elizabeth had lifted up many, many prayers to the Lord asking for a son. And now that prayer is going to be answered. I think there's an application for us in this. Keep praying. Be persistent in your prayers. Keep talking to God because God answers prayer. Not always in our timing but in his timing. And not always in the way that we think would be what we want, but it's the way that is best for us. Now, it may not seem like that at the time, but we can be confident that God answers our prayers in the way that is best for us. So keep praying, keep asking God, keep looking for his answers in his timing. So here we get this uh, good news from Zechariah, and let's go on in verse 14, and we're going to hear more good news. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord. Let's stop right there after he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, this is good news upon good news. Isn't that music to a parent's ear to hear your child is going to be a joy and delight to you? And not only to you, but to many others. We all would love to hear that great news. Our children will be a delight to many others. And then he says, what every parent wants, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
That's what we want for our children. We want them to know God and to love God and to walk with God. We want them to experience God's love for them. And the angel tells Zechariah this is what's going to happen. And then these uh, words about no wine, no fermented drink... That is referring to the Nazarite vow that is in the Old Testament. And Zechariah would have been familiar with that. And we don't have time to go into the the, uh, Nazarite vow, but two examples of uh, people that took that would be Samuel and Samson. And they took this vow, they did without um, certain things, because they were set apart to do something special for God. So Zechariah would know when he hears this, he's going to do something special for God. And then it says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you what that that, uh, was like back then. Not everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit when they believed in God. Uh, We read in the Old Testament that God put his Holy Spirit on certain people for certain special tasks. And we also know, um, because of King Saul, who disobeyed God, that God could take his spirit off of people. So it meant you were going to do something special when you had the Holy Spirit on you. That is why, just an aside, that's why it was so big in John 14 when Jesus told his disciples, when I go, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And why it was such a big deal in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when they were praying and the Holy Spirit came down and filled the disciples and the followers and then all those believers that were in Jerusalem at the time. You know, sometimes I think I take that for granted, that the minute we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit forever. He cannot be removed from us. The Holy Spirit is with us. So this was a big deal. Zechariah would know that his son was going to do something special. So let's go on and see what that is. Verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, here he's hearing and he would know this is that prophecy from Malachi. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah, your son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's the one that is going to prepare the people for the Savior to come. And so what is Zechariah's response? Let's look. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah's first response is one of doubt. How's this going to happen? And then, I love this part, um, the angel begins to give him some credentials. Verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. You know, um, Some would say that this was a punishment or a rebuke for his unbelief, this this not being able to speak. But it was also a sign from God that what God had said was going to happen is going to happen. And every time you try to speak, Zechariah, you're going to be reminded that God is sending you a son. So in a way, I think it was a blessing from God. It was a blessing to take care of Zechariah's doubt. 
you know, we all have doubts. Um, our faith is weak. We aren't quite sure we can trust Jesus for this difficulty in our life. Or maybe we read something in scripture and we think, did this really happen? You know, ladies, we can take our honest doubt to God. We can, if we are honestly seeking God and uh, wanting his truth, we can take our doubt to God and let God resolve it. Um, one of my favorite verses is in Mark 9, 24. This is the father that comes to Jesus and says, if you can, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, if I can, everything's possible for him who believes. And immediately, Mark 9, 24, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I've said that before, have you? I trust you, Lord. Help me trust you more. Or, I believe you. Help my unbelief. We can take our honest doubt to God. I have another verse on there. We don't have time to go into it. But even the disciples were like, where are you going? We don't get it. Are you sure? And Jesus gives them John 14, 1 um, on your verse sheet to uh, reassure them and to alleviate their doubt. So let's go on, keep reading here, and let's see what the response of Elizabeth is. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth's response is one of humility and gratitude. She, I'm sure Zechariah would have written out to her what the angel had said. She knew what was going to happen. She becomes pregnant and she is filled not only with joy but with gratitude for God. She gives God the credit. She is humble realizing this is his favor upon me. Now this disgrace um, in the... Bible times back then for Jewish women not to have a child was was looked at as a disgrace because they saw children as a blessing from God. So if you didn't get pregnant, then that meant you had done something wrong to the Lord and this was kind of a curse that you weren't getting pregnant. So it wasn't true, but that's what the people thought. Um, and so it would have been very painful for Elizabeth. Some of you in this room may have struggled with um, fertility and it's a painful thing. You don't quite have the stigma that we had back then, but it's a painful thing. So Elizabeth was filled with joy, and she responds in humility, and she responds with gratitude. We don't know what she was doing those five months. Maybe she was um, spending it in devotion and worship of God. Maybe she was pondering what that meant, that her son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. But anyway, we do know that she believed God that he was going to give her this son. Because if you will drop down to verse 39, those verses in between we're going to talk about next week. Verse 39 says, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, and where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. She, uh, Elizabeth, recognizes that Mary is carrying the Messiah. 
And she is filled with the Holy Spirit and she begins to encourage Mary with these words of blessing. And what an encouragement this would be for Mary in the weeks and the months to come. And let's finish up here with Zechariah's response of obedience and faithfulness in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And they said, well, there's no one in your relatives in that name. Verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to... Speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Zechariah obeyed God. The angel Gabriel said his name was John, and Zechariah says his name is John. And then the first words out of his mouth are words of praise to God. You know, I think for nine months, maybe he had been um, praising God every time he saw Elizabeth getting bigger and bigger with child. And so the first words out are words of praise. And then there's a song of Zechariah that maybe you can uh, read during the week. It's a song of joy. You know, another application I have for us is that be looking for Jesus working in your life. And when you see that, lift up words of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. So what does this mean for us, Zachariah and Elizabeth? What, what can we take home with that? You know, we've said that they uh, obeyed God completely. They followed him wholeheartedly. And they uh, loved him deeply. But what does this study of the book of Luke mean for us? What's it going to mean for us this semester? I hope so much. I invite you to come back next week and every week after and study this exciting book of Luke so that we can learn the truth about Jesus. I invite you to do your homework. You know, don't stress over it. Just read the scripture verses and try to answer the questions as best you can. It is for you. It's not for us. It's so that you will have a little more insight into God's word. Come and study as we learn the truth about Jesus. And I was thinking there might be some of you out there and you don't know the truth about Jesus. You don't know what you believe about him. You've never made a commitment or stepped out in faith um, believing Jesus. My prayer for you is that as we study the truth of Jesus this semester, that it will go deep inside you and that your heart will be open to Jesus and you will believe in him and that you will enter into the kingdom. And for those of us that have already made a decision to trust Christ, we believe in Jesus, we have a relationship with him. My prayer for us is that as we learn the truth about Jesus, as we learn more about him, study more from the book of Luke, that, me, that we may be more like Zechariah and Elizabeth, following him wholeheartedly, obeying him completely, and loving him more deeply. Stay with us all semester as we study this great book. Thanks for coming today. It's so good to see all of you. And let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. You are good and you are great and we love you, Lord. Thank you for this word. May the study of Luke just stir our souls. May it draw us closer to you. May we know more about Jesus than we knew before we started. 
We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.